Well, this morning, I'd, I'd like to take a, a text from the Word of God as a, as a starting point for us this morning. And if you would uh, turn with me in your, your uh, Bibles to the book of Nehemiah, book of Nehemiah chapter 12. Nehemiah chapter 12, um, I just want you to turn down, please, to verse 43. And on that day they offered great sacrifices, rejoicing because God had given them great joy. And I want you just to notice that. God had given them great joy. This was, of course, the dedication and the rebuilding of the uh, wall at Jerusalem. was the, the thing that was accomplished by the help of God and by Nehemiah himself and those who worked with him. And one of the great texts in Nehemiah is that the joy of the Lord uh, shall be your strength. But this text here in 43 uh, indicates for us that God had given them, that is the, the people who worked with Nehemiah to rebuild the Jerusalem wall, God had given them great joy. So I want you to, to, to notice that, please, that this, this kind of joy is uh, supernaturally given. It's given by God. It's not uh, something that's um, uh, human in the sense that it, it, it is a human emotion and it is a human experience, but it's given, it's given by God. I want to speak to you this morning for a little while of, about the joy of the Lord. And the reason I want to talk about the joy of the Lord is that I would want to, this morning, encourage you as a, as a congregation, I would want to um, encourage you to be strong and to go on, that, that God has a purpose for you, God has a destiny for you as a church, um, even in the midst of uh, difficulties and circumstances that are beyond your control and with uncertainties and all the other factors that life threw at us as individuals and as a congregation, I want to encourage you that, that this joy, this joy of the Lord, can and is and will become your strength, your strength to do the will of God on the earth. Now, when I was a little, a little boy in Belfast, the Presbyterian Church, it was called Great Victoria Street Presbyterian Church, had a little city mission um, in our area, and I went along um, as, a, as a child, and this dear old uh, lady, I, I, I remember her well, uh, godly lady, taught us um, scripture, and she also taught us a little thing called a catechism. I don't know if you've ever heard of that, and probably most Presbyterians have, older ones at least. You heard of the catechism, John? He knows it off by heart. One of the um, first statements in this catechism is this. Man's chief end is to glorify God. Who can finish it? And to enjoy him forever. And that's, that's, good. that's good theology. That's sound theology that man's chief end. In other words, my purpose and your purpose for existing is to glorify God. <clears throat> That's why we were created. We were created to have a relationship with the 
king of the universe and to glorify him. That's why his image is stamped on us. We're made in his image and we have the imprint of God. And so our whole purpose and our aim in life is to have a relationship with God and to glorify him. And notice this, and to enjoy him forever. Now, I once was in a conversation with uh, a, a Christian, and he said to me, he said to me, well, Christianity is a bit boring, isn't it? <clears throat> and I said to him, well, why do you say that? And he says, well, you just have to go to church and do, do the right thing and do your duty. And I said, well, that sounds very mechanical. And uh, I said to him, I don't see it like that. I see it like this, that the God who created us and that the God who called us and who saved us through his son, Jesus Christ, wants to have a real living relationship with us, filled with his presence, and he calls us to enjoy himself. In other words, Christianity or or following Jesus Christ, isn't a mechanical thing. It's a a dynamic living relationship with the true and the living God. And there's a kind of entering into the very joy of knowing who God is. Listen, recently I I listened to a a set of um, debates with uh, Professor John Lennox, uh, Dr. I think it's Dr. Schirmeyer. Um, he's an atheist. Lennox is a, Lennox comes from Northern Ireland, and he's a, a professor, I think, of mathematics, scientific man, um, but a real apologist. That is a defender of the faith. And uh, one of the things that that John Lennox brought out was that really, if you take God out of people's Life, and if you do what atheism does, say that there is no God and that everything was uh, a chance or a, 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 an event that happened that has no purpose or reason to it, then you take away hope and you take away um, the very joy of living. <clears throat> because in that basis, then we live, we die, and we're gone and forgotten and we become some sort of molecule or particle in the universe that's taken up by something else. And in a thousand years, who would remember your name or know that you ever existed or longer? But not so in God, because our creator, God, knows each of us by name, and we have an eternal existence given to us by the God of the universe. And so entering into that relationship of joy with him is to know him, and to enjoy him forever. There's a couple of interesting biblical words that uh, bring out this lovely idea of joy. Uh, in the Hebrew language, there's a few words. Uh, shimha, or the verb is shamiah. And these imply, these Hebrew words imply that there is an outward expression of joy. In other words, when there's this joy of the Lord in your heart, it can be seen. It can be identified. Now, let me, let me say it like this. 
When, when my mother became a Christian, when she became a believer, and that happened when I was 10 years of age, I remember looking at her, and I remember saying to myself, there's something different about her. And I remember saying to my sister, um, what's happened? Uh, she seems happy. She seems content. And so what I think I observed as a, as a 10-year-old boy was the fact that she had passed from darkness into light. She had gone from death to life. Her sins had been forgiven. And through believing in the Lord Jesus Christ, she had entered into the joy of salvation and the joy of forgiveness. And I, and I think that's what this Hebrew idea means here, that this can be seen outwardly, but it's more than an outward expression. There's a couple of Greek words as well that come to us in the New Testament, the word kara or carol. Uh, frequently, these, these verbs or these nouns uh, mean intense joy, joy that's uh, full and, and rich and doesn't lack in anything. And this is not the joy that, that you find in the world where you have people wrapped up in the joy of the moment or the temporal, that is, people that go after possessions and things and trying to fill a void in their life and they think they have found happiness but they really don't because the way God has created us, there's a, there's a vacuum in each one of us that only God can satisfy. And if we don't have God, then we don't have that joy of the Lord. We don't have that strength. We don't have that, that relationship and therefore we become, in a sense, aimless and we miss our purpose in life. Now, in the Old Testament and the New Testament, joy is, is consistently the mark uh, of both individually of the believer and corporately of the church. So, when we read the, the Old Testament and the New Testament, Old Testament believers and New Testament believers and congregations were signified or identified because of their, their joy because of their experience of God that reflected through them and in their lives. And it's a quality. It's not just simply an emotion, this, this joy of the Lord, it, because it's grounded upon God himself, and it's derived from him. Now, I want you to see that, that this joy isn't a kind of a transient thing. It's derived and grounded in God. And so, it's like this. If God is in my life, no matter what the experience might be, I can still have this, this, this joy, this quality of knowing and experiencing his grace and his goodness and his salvation. Now, I'm not saying to you that we, do not pa we, we, don't pa we pass through things that are tragic and we do pass through things that are unpleasant. And we can experience grief and sorrow and loss and all of those things. But there's something different about this joy. This is a kind of supernatural thing that, that God gives to us this assurance and this knowledge that we have this deep relationship with him. And when we think about this and we step into it, there's a kind of joyous peace. There's a kind of shalom that comes to us and brings us joy at, even despite the, the most difficult circumstances. 
I think when you remember in the New Testament, Paul and Silas uh, in Acts 16 in the prison at Philippi, and uh, they were chained, of course. And at midnight, Paul and Silas sang praises to God. Now, that's, that's quite a thing. They're, they're, they're bound in a Roman prison. They're not sure if they're going to be executed or what's going to happen. And yet, at midnight, they're singing praises to God. Now, that is not natural. I heard the story in Africa, I think it was in the Congo, where the Congolese uh, rebels had captured a number of white people and uh, African people, and they had lined up everyone to be shot. And when they came along to uh, this particular group of men, these men started to sing, and they started to praise God. And the rebels looked at one another and said, these men are not cards, let them go. Now, there's, there's a kind of issue here that's, that transcends the normal circumstances because praise and worship experienced in our lives brings this kind of overflowing joy that comes from God himself. Not only is this joy grounded upon God and derived from him, but it characterizes the, the Christian's life on earth. And it also anticipates the joy of, of being with Christ in the kingdom, the eternal kingdom. And there's a couple of scriptures that uh, bring that out to us. First Peter 1 and 8 and Revelation 19 and 7 uh, indicate this kind of joy, this kind of uh, anticipation of the glory uh, of God and the goodness of God for the believer. You can look this up at your, at your leisure, but when you know or you have this assurance that not only do you have a relationship with Jesus here on earth, but your, your name is written in heaven, it sort of brings a bit of a smile to your face. And one of the um, things that I, I really um, treasure is this, that that what we experience here now as, as believers in Jesus Christ is only a little foretaste of what we will experience when we see Jesus face to face. Because if I'm filled with the, the joy of his presence and I'm filled with the joy of forgiveness, if the joy of the Lord is my strength today, what will it be when Christ comes and we stand in the presence of God clothed in, in the righteousness of Jesus. Sin's power and sin's presence and sin's penalty is gone. And we're face to face with our Redeemer. And we stand redeemed and saved, not only in time, but for all eternity. There's a glory and there's a peace about that assurance in a person's life. So let me recap. In the Old Testament and in the New Testament, joy is the mark of the believer in the church. It's a quality, not just an emotion. It's not just an emotion that wells up. It's grounded upon God, and it's derived from him, this, this joy of the Lord. Now, in Psalm 16, in, in verse 11, we read this. You will show me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures Forevermore. You can see the, the idea of joy and pleasure 
but it's associated with the presence of God. And so if the presence of God is, is in our life and amongst us as a congregation, this is the natural outflow of the presence of God. In your presence is fullness of joy, and at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. And of course, the psalm makes it clear that he will show us the path of life. So God's joy, God's presence is life-giving, it's edifying, it brings us into righteousness, it brings us into truth, it brings us into the path of life where we walk in the will of God and do the will of God. And it brings us to a place where God takes more of us so that he might be demonstrated and become a witness to the world through us. You know that wonderful verse in Philippians 4 and 4, rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. So Paul gives this double affirmation here about rejoicing in the Lord. And you see, God is the one that we rejoice in. It's because of who he is and what he is. Our God is a good God. Our God is a God of love, a God of mercy, a God of righteousness, a God of truth. And we ought to rejoice in not just the things of God, but in the Lord himself. So our life is characterized by joy on earth as Christians, and this is just a foretaste of what's to come. This kind of joy also anticipates the fact that we are in the kingdom of God and there is the kingdom that is coming and when Jesus comes, we'll enter into that fullness of joy that Jesus himself gives. Now, I want to go back to the Old Testament just for a little moment. In the Old Testament, uh, joy was uh, related to the national and religious life of Israel and particularly expressed in, in terms of Noisy, tumultuous excitement at festivals and sacrifices and enthronement ceremonies. Deuteronomy 12 and 6, 1 Samuel 18 and 6, and 1 Kings uh, indicate for us some of the incidences or events that were significant in the life of Israel. And so when the people of Israel got together for uh, one of the festivals of Yahweh or some of the sacrificial offerings, um, there was these kinds of overflowing expressions of tumultuous joy. For example, when Nehemiah dedicated the, the wall at, at Jerusalem, uh, run about 445 uh, B.C. or thereabouts, there was this kind of um, ceremony where the people were not only offered up a prayers of confession and humbled themselves, but when they passed through that confession and humility before God and restored the law and the Torah into their life and said that they would obey God, then Nehemiah said to them, now go home and celebrate and rejoice. And when this dedication of the wall took place, in Nehemiah's day, the sound of the rejoicing was heard far away from Jerusalem because the people were overflowed with the goodness and the presence of God. 
In the Old Testament, spontaneous joy is one of the features of the, the, the Psalms. It's a mark both of, of not only corporate worship, but it was also um, a feature in the temple worship. Psalm 42 and 4 and Psalm 81 gives us some of those uh, incidences. But it was also the mark of, of personal adoration. Many of the psalmists uh, also expressed personally their joy in God. And you see, what we are privately, and if we are people who love the Lord and enjoy God's presence privately, when we come together, that corporate thing will then overflow as a congregation. We'll become a congregation of praise, a congregation of worship, a congregation of joy. One of the things that um, people often remark about Christians in a good sense is that they appear to be joyous, appear to be happy. Now, on another sense, some people have not been so kind. And... um, some, I guess sometimes we've been accused in the church of, of being rather staid or formal or miserable at times. And I remember a, a Baptist once said, and this was about a brethren congregation, he said, um, well, you know that scripture in Thessalonians? He says, the dead in Christ shall rise first. And then he turned around and he said, well, that's, that's the brethren because they're all dead. There's no life about them at all. And sometimes as Presbyterians, we've been accused of that too. Yes, we have the joy of the Lord, but it's all inward. And that's, that's okay. I am not complaining. You don't have to um, be exuberant. But what I'm saying is this, that inwardly and deep within our hearts, this is what I'm talking about. There's this underlying presence that God has forgiven us and blessed us. And that brings a joy. And sometimes that joy overflows and it becomes evident to the world and to others. And uh, in the Old Testament, of course, this, this joy was particularly expressed at, at their religious festivals when they gathered together to worship Yahweh, the God of Israel. Isaiah the prophet, he, he conceived of this joy um, and he, in, a, in a kind of a rich, in ritual terms. Psalm 126 sort of opens up for us that this joy is associated with the fullness of God's salvation. There's a kind of idea that not only are you and I rejoicing, but the very cosmos, the very heavens will rejoice in anticipation of the enthronement or the, the revelation of God over all creation. And Isaiah 49 and, and Isaiah 61 give us some uh, texts in that, in, in that vein of things. I want you to, I'll just turn there to Isaiah 49, 13. We'll read the text together. And Isaiah 61 and 10, just to give the context of 
these two. I think they're significant. Uh, Isaiah 49 and 13 is, Shout for joy, O heavens. Rejoice, O earth. Burst into song, O mountains. For the Lord comforts his people and will have compassion on his afflicted ones. So there's a kind of cosmic or um, the very heavens, the very earth is rejoicing. Uh, The very earth and heavens are called to shout for joy and to rejoice because the Lord comforts, the Lord shows kindness to his people. And then in in chapter 61, if we turn over in verse 10, notice that this is a personal um, affirmation here. I delight greatly in the Lord. My soul rejoices in my God. Now that's beautiful because there's a kind of parallelism going on here. I, I greatly rejoice or delight in the Lord and rejoice in my God. So it's I and my soul delight and rejoice in the Lord my God. You see that beautiful Hebrew parallelism in poetry in the text. Notice this. Why? Why do we rejoice? Why, why do we overflow in the Hebrew context of this joy being evident in our lives and outwardly expressed? Well, for this reason, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation and arrayed, arrayed me in a robe of righteousness. So here's this work of God to clothe me in righteousness, to array me in a robe of righteousness. This wonderful parallelism goes on. As a bridegroom adorns his head like a priest, and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. So here you can see that there's a kind of, um, in, in the imagery and the metaphor of the, um, the text, this kind of joy, this kind of righteousness is evident, and it's beautiful in the eyes of God. Because I have never met a woman yet that didn't want to look beautiful on her wedding day. Is that true? Well, here it is with God. That God has entered into a relationship with us. And this kind of joy and righteousness that's expressed in us is beautiful not only to God, but it's beautiful to the world if people are honest. I remember working once in this uh, travel office uh, it was an office uh, run, I don't know why you remember it, um, Thomas Cook Travel. They're no longer in Australia, I don't think. I'm just hacking the time, John. We have another, we have another wee bit yet. It's fine. If he starts playing, it's time for me to sit down, okay? So it's working in this travel office. And the manager was the most miserable, cantankerous, argumentative, abusive, loud-mouth, rude man you could ever meet. I used a lot of adjectives there to describe him. And he came over to my desk, and he pulled the drawer out. And he rummaged through it, and he found a calculator and went off. And I turned around and I looked at him. And I said... I'm not going to stand for this. So I went over to his desk and pulled his desk out, threw it in the floor. And he just looked at me. 
And I said, how do you like that? <laughs> anyway, that was our starting point. Later on, I don't know how many times he exploded, was abusive to the staff, got irate at the customers. One day he came, and here's what he said one day. He said to me, how is it that you remain so calm? How is it that you don't lose your cool? I said, well, it's been very difficult with you, and I'm Irish. If it hadn't been for the grace of God, I said, I would have thumped you. (laughs) The point is that it doesn't matter about the circumstances. Deep down in my heart, I knew that my God had forgiven me. My God had blessed me. My God had given me with a righteousness that wasn't my own. That was the righteousness of Christ. And that gives me the sense that I know whom I have believed and I have that joy of knowing that I'm a child of God. Now that doesn't fade. That doesn't go away. That's given by God himself. And it stands good in every situation and in every trial and every difficulty. So Isaiah, Isaiah 61, a beautiful, beautiful text. Um, let's move on. In the New Testament, the, the Gospels uh, are record also a very high note of joy in connection with the proclamation of the the gospel or the good news of the kingdom. Um, So people were to rejoice that the good news of the kingdom, that the kingdom of God had come or was was near. And and for example, at the the birth of the Messiah, the birth of Jesus, there's a Joy mentioned at the birth of, of Christ. Uh, in, the, in Luke's Gospel, chapter 2, verse 10, we read this beautiful account. Luke says, But the angel said unto them, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. Today, in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is Christ, or he is the Messiah, the Lord, that is, the one who is coexistent, co-eternal with the God of Israel, the Messiah, the Lord, the God-man, the Redeemer, the one who became flesh and dwelt among us. And in Luke's gospel, it's for all people. Luke is the universal gospel that goes out to the Gentiles. And at the birth of Messiah... It was great joy. Why? Because the Savior was born. And God's purposes were about to be fulfilled. And then, of course, uh, in the same uh, gospel, if you, if you return to uh, chapter 19, verse 37, the Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem. Uh, Jesus is about to go to the cross. And he's uh, approaching uh, the the road where it goes down from the Mount of Olives to to Jerusalem. And when he came near, the place where the road goes down, the Mount of Olives, the crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. And then, of course, they quote that that beautiful uh, text. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Psalm 118 the psalm of the king, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. So Jesus is approaching Jerusalem, and yet there is joy and commotion associated with his entry. Yet the one who has given us the joy of forgiveness, 
was to be nailed and crucified upon a cross of shame. And this joy that's mentioned here of the crowd and the disciples soon turns to sorrow and mourning. But that sorrow and mourning is turned into joy again by the resurrection. I want to say this morning, our Lord Jesus is alive. Amen. He's alive. He lives in the power of an endless life. and He lives by his spirit in each of our hearts. And we want to be joyous this morning because Christ has risen. Amen. He's arisen from the dead and he is Lord. In the fourth gospel, Jesus himself communicates this joy. That is in the book of uh, John's gospel, uh, John chapter 15, verse 11. This is what Jesus says. I have told you this so that my joy may be in you, that your joy may be complete. As the Father has loved me, this is verse 9, so have I loved you. Now remain in my love. If you obey my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have obeyed my Father's commands and remain in his love. So in other words, Jesus has said that he has left his joy with us, that our joy may be full, there's a kind of joy when we obey the Lord, isn't there? Um, for those that, are, that go through adult baptism who become Christians, there's a kind of joy when they, they pass through the, the rite or the covenant of baptism. Whenever we do anything for the Lord out of obedience, there's a joy associated with that. You know the old hymn that says, there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. And so this text here, when Jesus as the, the vine and we are the branches, when we abide in him, when we remain in him and have fellowship with him, then we have his joy. We have the joy of his salvation that flows in and out of our lives. In the Acts of the Apostles, joy marked the life of the early church. It accompanies the gift of the Holy Spirit in Acts 13 and 52. In that context, joy is demonstrated by the the ministry and the work of the Spirit. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. That's uh, when Barnabas and Saul went off on their missionary journey. Um... The Gentiles also heard the word of God. There's this kind of cross-cultural ministry going on where the gospel was moving out of a Jewish context into the Gentile world. But it says here that the word of the Lord spread through the whole region. Both both the Jews incited the God-fearing women of high standing and leading men of the city. They stirred up persecution against Paul, and Barnabas. So here they are, and they're in this town of Antioch. There's opposition. There's a riot that's nearly been caused. And Paul and Barnabas are expelled from the region. And what did Paul and Barnabas do? They shook off the dust from their feet and protest against them, and they went on to Iconium. But then it says this, the text says, and the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. So even in times of persecution, in times of hardship, where we're persecuted for our faith, this joy can't be 
uh, extinguished because it's associated with the ministry of the Holy Spirit as we go into the world and, and proclaim the gospel. So Paul uses this um, idea of joy in, in three ways, and I'll, I'll be brief with these. First of all, progress in faith on the part of, of those who belong to Christ, particularly those who have been led to Christ, there's, there's a cause of joy here associated with them. Paul describes uh, those that have come to Christ indeed as our joy. In other words, when Paul went into a, a town like Thessalonica or Philippi, First um, Thessalonians 2.19, Philippians 2 and 2, um, he describes those that, that have come to the Lord Jesus as, in inverted commas, our joy, the joy of the apostles. And so when we see people growing in their faith, especially elders in a congregation, when they see people growing in their faith and progressing in the Christian experience, and in inverted commas, they become our joy. That is, it brings pleasure to the heart of Christ, and it, it would bring pleasure to the heart of godly elders in a congregation who can see people maturing and going on for the Lord Jesus. Secondly, Christian joy may paradoxically be the outcome of suffering, even sorrow for Christ's sake. This is something I want you to notice, that, that even in the midst of suffering and sorrow for the Lord, this joy remains, and it's produced by the Lord and not by ourselves. It, it's not something that we manufacture. There's a number of scriptures that uh, give us this kind of help. I'll turn to one of them, actually. If we turn to First uh, Peter 4.13. Just First Peter 4.13. We'll go there and have a look at this one, and then we'll move on. So First Peter 4.13. Uh, is a joy in suffering or the outcome of suffering. But rejoice that you participate in the sufferings of Christ so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. In other words, when as faithful servants and believers we're persecuted or we suffer for Christ, we're commanded by, by Peter to rejoice. But rejoice that you participate in the sufferings of Christ. That is, that is the, the, the Savior was rejected and persecuted, so may we be also rejected and persecuted. It's not that we, we suffer with Christ vicariously, that the way he suffered on the cross for us, it's really that we have a kind of fellowship in suffering, that is, if Jesus was rejected, so might we. But this is so that you might be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. So they that suffer with him will also reign with him. And there's that kind of compensating thing going on where we can be overjoyed when Christ comes in glory, even though 
things might be difficult now. Last point I want to bring to you is that joy is, in fact, a gift of the Spirit. Galatians 5 and 22 talk about joy being a gift of the Spirit or part of the fruit of the Spirit. And so there's something dynamic about this joy. It's not static. It, it comes from the love of God. It doesn't come from us. And it's associated with love. And it's associated with the fruit of the Spirit. So it's supernaturally given and it's supernaturally inspired and sustained. And it's a gift that, that flows to us by the ministry of the indwelling Holy Spirit that brings to us the, the joy of forgiveness and the joy of redemption and the joy of knowing that Jesus is our Savior. You might say to me, well, David, why is it that sometimes we don't always experience this? It doesn't mean to say that it doesn't exist in our life or in our experience as believers. This joy can be interrupted by, by sin. So every believer is, is called to share in the joy of Christ or the joy of the Lord. And by a daily walk with the Lord Jesus, and by daily worship and prayer, we can enter into the experience and the practice of rejoicing in the knowledge of God and his salvation. Now, what happens when we sin? Well, when we sin, that link of communion with, with God is broken, but not the link of union. We remain a child of God. Jesus, when he dealt with my sins on the cross and your sins, he dealt with them all finally and completely. I'm saved by grace through faith. I'm saved through Christ and Christ alone. But my experience of that, that wonderful salvation can be interrupted by the way I live and by sin. And so if I use a harsh word or if I'm unforgiving or if I disobey God, then I grieve the Holy Spirit and I feel the grief of the Spirit. But when I confess that sin, as First John 1 and 9 commands me to do, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. For we know the blood of Jesus Christ, God's Son, cleanses us from all sin. When we do that, when we come back and we confess, that communion, that fellowship is restored and that flow of joy, that flow of the Spirit uh, to bring to us the joy of forgiveness and the joy of Christ enters into our experience again. It's not that it's removed. It's just that God wants us to keep short accounts with himself. So the joy of the Lord is your strength. And as Karang, as a congregation, I want to say this to you, and I, and I haven't been here for quite a while, and that's, that's okay. But... I do love you in the Lord, and I want to say this to you. Be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. God has a purpose for you as a congregation. God has a destiny for you. Um, you're not too old. No one's too old to be used by God. Because then, if we, if we believe that, we'd be limiting God, and we're not going to limit God. God can use each and every one of you. And I pray, my heart's desire, my prayer for Kerrang is that it would be filled and overflowing with the joy of the Lord and that this congregation would be known throughout the PCV as a congregation of praise and joy, glorifying Jesus Christ. 
and magnifying him in the world. Now, may God bless you, and may God help us. And I think I've finished on time. John, let me just check. Hold on. Yes, I have. It's a miracle. 10.39. John said, could you finish at 20 to 11? I said, John, for you, anything. So it's done. Sermon. Thus endeth the sermon.